2: Welcome, welcome, welcome to the start of the week, to the start of the show. It's Kelly and Rumia here on AMI. I'm Rumia Amudin. We're working on Kelly McDonald being here, and Grant Hardy is stepping in, at least for segment one. How's it going, Grant?
3: Oh. Monday. That's Monday, but at the same time, we're only... Literally a week away from filming our live uh, show, and that is exciting, isn't it?
2: So exciting! Prime time, Kelly and Rumiya. We're taping it on the 27th. If you've already uh, locked yourself in as part of the audience, then we're very excited to see you a week from now, as you said, Grant. And I am excited because this is like the week of preparing all the last-minute stuff, making sure it's as fun, fun, fun as possible, and. Uh, you and beth have some work to do on entertaining us on the day of as well (laughs) any hints
3: apparently i think we're gonna try and get on some of the voices from our community chat with the audience about how they're feeling
4: okay why they showed
3: up what they're excited about it's gonna be good it's hard to believe it's uh, a week away and it's one of those things where it doesn't it doesn't feel real yet, you know, like we're really going to gonna do it, but it's going to be
4: good.
2: It'll feel real over the weekend when <laughs> we're leading up to it, but it's going to be an exciting time. Lots of other excitement coming our way as well, especially today on the show. So let's see what we have lined up. We're talking with filmmaker and writer and director and actress Emily Schooley about her short film called Psyche. And this is featured in the most recent episode of Disrupt on AMI+.
3: There are two upcoming holiday shows at the Grand Theatre in London, Ontario. Community reporter Annette Dennis has more.
2: Also on Know Your Rights later on in hour two, Danielle McLaughlin chats with Professor Laverne Jacobs about disability and human rights law. This is a highly anticipated conversation for Danielle, so I'm really looking forward to what uh, the both of them will bring to the table later on as professionals and experts in their fields. Okay, so Kelly brought this to the table today to chat about. Chat GPT maker OpenAI has fired its co-founder and CEO. Let's find out more.
0: The board of directors of OpenAI announcing that the company head and co-founder, Sam Altman, is leaving. Mira Marathi, the company's chief technology officer, was named interim replacement effective immediately. The OpenAI board says after conducting a review, it concluded that Altman was, in its words, not consistently candid in his communications with the board, hindering its ability to exercise its responsibilities. Reports say hours after Altman was removed, co-founder Greg Brockman resigned. Chuck Sievertson, ABC News.
2: Now, I've been hearing more about the investigations of what's going on with this firing. Um, I'm not even sure what the context of the investigations are, maybe if to find out if it was a lawful uh, dismissal. But Grant, we know based on past news and events with big tech corporations like Apple, uh, when there is firing of people from the exec team, A- We wonder how the company itself is going to suffer or be challenged or get back on its feet. And then B, the story of the person. Now, that takes a bit longer time to get to know, um, but the story behind the actual person who got let go and their journey afterwards, I feel like I'm very much ahead of myself in all this, but because it's happened before, I'm thinking patterns, patterns.
3: Yeah, gee, it, it'll be it'll be so interesting. And it's interesting when the turmoil of a company is this well hidden. You know, like I feel like some mm. sometimes we're kind of like, yeah, you know, this makes sense. This company had kind of a crappy product release, whatever. But Open AI has just been eating everyone up. They've got <laughs> Microsoft and whoever else partnered with them, and then all of a sudden, this happens. They just seem so highly successful that I can't imagine how this happened and don't know what things are going to be like for them now.
2: Does it also speak to just the climate we live in now where we are becoming more transparent? Like, you don't have as much of the uh, ifs, ands, or buts, or, you know, this. I can't believe it. This person's been around for 10 years or 20 years. You know, they are the ones who started this company. It's more like, nope, sorry, they, they did wrong. We got to get rid of them. We don't have to uh, wait around and see how the cards play out. Do you think that there's yeah. a lot more just rigidity around this now?
3: That sounds like it's maybe part of it, and the the thought that it, none of us are irreplaceable. Like I'm sure he felt pretty, you know, smug, but mm. I'm I'm sure there are a, a ton of other people who are like, yeah, I can take this job. You know, you go ahead and promote me, or I'll get into the company. You know, step in. Uh, I'm sure there are a lot of hands on deck that can take that role. Oh but yeah, but sometimes like- it changes the structure of the company.
2: Oh, it definitely does. I do think, though, I mean, I don't know how long OpenAI has been around. It feels very recent just because we've been hearing about ChatGPT. But in general, maybe the company does have more of a a stake in the ground than I realize. But to me, it's kind of like, oh, they're fresh, they're new, they're changing. It doesn't feel too, uh, you know, overwhelming as a consumer, as a person who's just checking headlines.
3: Yeah, and I feel that they've really been thrust into the public eye, but they have had quite a lot of other products and stuff in the past that have maybe flown under the radar. But mm. at the, at this time of success, and I've been hearing that other other people are thinking of resigning in protest. You know this this just seems very odd to me.
2: Yeah. Well, I don't know. Uh, well, they they get big, and then he gets fired, and now we got to find out the tea behind that. Whew. Mm. Pretty uh, big. Yeah, pretty mean and (laughs) conspiratorial. All right, we're going to take a break and continue to talk OpenAI on the other side of the break because OpenAI uh, had developer day a couple weeks ago, and we're going to talk about those announcements and a couple other things on our Tech Talk with Michael Babcock. We'll be right back on Kelly and Ramya.
0: Don't miss a minute. Kelly and Ramya will be right back.
2: quite a risky person you know i take a lot of risks like anastasia who's directing today um as irene's off is telling us you know five seconds to air and this is at the start of the show by the way not this break and i'm like oh no i didn't have a sip of coffee and i take a sip of coffee with five seconds for me to bring in the show grant do you take such risks
3: i can't i i can't afford i have to have my coffee <laughs> on standby all the time i cannot afford to not because then i'm gonna you know say something that i shouldn't say on the show and then i'm gonna get fired so with five
2: seconds to speaking potentially would you take a sip of coffee
3: it's going to be I feel like five seconds before coming out of the break for sure. I'm always like, I don't know if I, people can see hmm. my coffee on air. So I want to put that uh, that down ASAP. But yeah, pr- yeah, pretty close to air for sure.
2: Yeah, reasonable, right? And I'm, if you think yes. about it, I've actually gone much better because it used to be like taking a bite of cupcake with five seconds to coming back on air, things like that. Mm. Not great. Not a good idea.
3: We've right. done it when we were on audio for sure. Yeah,
2: on audio? Everything passes <laughs> yes. on audio. Yes. We're going to get into more tech talk. We started off with a bit of tech at the start of the show. Let's keep going with Michael Babcock.
5: App news, device reviews, security advice, and more. It's time to talk tech with me, Michael Babcock. Get your dose of ever-changing technology knowledge right here on Kelly and Romeo.
2: Michael, you heard the question, which was when the hell did uh, OpenAI come on the scene and you figured it out, 2015?
5: Yeah, 2015. I put Google search. Mm. Maybe I should have went to chat Chat GPT GPT. to find out the answer, right? (laughs)
2: Yeah, exactly. But that's a reasonable amount of time, um, especially for an exec to be with the company. And then I guess we'll figure out more about the fire we'll see
5: what happens with that because that that kind of caught me off guard too and anyone i i think a lot of people in the tech industry it just came out of nowhere yep. I, I didn't believe it at first
2: suddenly with not a lot of detail and then uh, now an investigation launched so really quite interesting yes. to follow the story yes. um but in other context around uh open ai they had developer day a couple of weeks ago and we want to know about the announcements
5: yeah, so uh speaking of things, can can people see things in camera? Just to forewarn people, there may be a dog that's sitting to my left okay. uh that's that's eager to let me know that the boys are coming downstairs. So hopefully he won't bark and, and we'll roll with it if he does. Um at the developer convention that happened for open AI, they announced that there were over 100 million weekly users. That's that's a lot of users on the chat GPT system. When wow. you think about it, it hasn't even been out for a full year. Um, they did launch the GPT-4 Turbo, which means it'll be able to get more information for you faster. And it can also take more details. Um, someone told me once that, Uh, I think I read it actually in a news article that now it can take up to 300 pages of content at once, which is a lot of content. Yeah, yeah. Um, Users can build their own GPTs without coding. Uh, I built myself a media coach. And uh, what that does is I gave it names of the shows that I contribute on or names of the shows that I host, what we talk about and some tips and uh, about the content. And I am now reaching out to my media coach to get some assistance from GPT, which I think is really interesting. And to build it this threw me off a little bit, uh, to build it, it asks you questions, right? And so you respond to the questions with what you, uh, what your answers are. Well, it told me, what type of style do you want this, uh, this, assistant or this gpt to have and i was overthinking it i'm like well i don't know i should open google and start searching for different styles and i said what am i doing i just asked gpt what do you mean give me some examples and it gave me some examples to answer its questions because again it's a chat bot it's not just a pick this or pick that Um, they're going to be launching a GPT store for users. You can already, if you're a GPT plus subscriber, quick side note, if you're not, you can't sign up right now. So just be aware of that. Um, they have a wait list because they've hit capacity. Um, but you can go in and you can choose your GPT and there are several different, uh, store GPTs that you can pick from one of which is a negotiator. So I want to play with that a little bit more. Yeah, to help Excellent. you with contract negotiation is what they give as the example. Um, so there's a new. Oh, go ahead.
3: Oh, so the, so it's essentially, uh, essentially, you can design your own GPT by giving it instructions, or you can purchase sort of pre-designed models. Is that the idea?
5: So we'll take the word purchase out for right now. We all know that's coming down the road Mm because, you know, why not? But right now they have several different for free that have been pre-configured that you can go in and chat with directly. Um, There's a a couple more things that I'll go over here that they mentioned. A new assistant API, which means that with these new assistants, app developers can plug into those and bring those new assistant personalities to apps that are available. Um, and so the last thing that I will mention is they also have an audio preset with six different voices for their API that gives you the ability to add GPT to your apps and then let people talk and get natural language back from the GPT itself.
3: I have heard some of their natural voices. I, I use a, a different app that sort of interacts directly with their API and those the voices are insanely natural we've Mm. all heard natural Uh speech but if you hear one of these voices it is really just blows you away (laughs) it's scary with how good they are
5: Mm. and what's really Um, eerie is if you use the chat gpt app itself and you enable the voice mode you're you're just having a you don't have to say a wake word you're just having a conversation with something that sounds eerily like a human uh it's kind of scary where we're going yeah
2: it's vr at its fullest okay
5: do we want to
3: talk a little bit about is it adept ai which is doing things a bit
5: differently yeah so when we talk about AI, and we've talked about it on the show, we've talked about these text-based AIs that you chat with. Well, Adapt AI is uh, using existing software to make itself be more aware of what you do, so you can choose to record different uh, actions that you take. For example, in an office, maybe you send form mails, or you are uh, sending a regular meeting invite to people. Well, you can teach the Adapt AI to be. Able able to perform these tasks as well, which then means that it now can take control of your computer and do the tasks that you tell it to do based on what you've taught it. And that's just the beginning of where they're going with that. And I think it's really interesting how they're using ADAPT to be able to learn how to, how individuals are using their technology and then interact with it. And the main researchers involved in this came from DeepMind Google and OpenAI in order to uh, bring this to life
2: wow Uh, there's there's also a chat GPT going back there Chrome extension to make uh, the interface more accessible how is it actually helpful Michael
5: yeah so it was developed by a blind individual to make the chat GPT website more accessible with screen readers Um, Open AI has been around for just about a year now, and there's still several unlabeled buttons inside Mm. the interface, which drives me crazy. So you get labels for those buttons. It also adds headings to the responses, so you can quickly jump between responses, kind of like if you're familiar with BARD, how BARD does it as well. And you can get that if you're using Chrome or Edge uh, by going to find the accessible GPT add-on.
3: That's great. Uh, switching gears a little bit, uh, AI played a role in the winning selection for Vespero's next big thing contest. I think we sometimes know them more as Freedom Scientific. Uh, what was yeah. this? Who won? How did it go?
5: Yeah, so uh, Freedom Scientific, Vispero, um, they held a contest this year that is the next big thing and how you can submit ideas for what you want to see come to the JAWS and uh, Zoom text applications. And the winner this year was Abby Duffy, and she suggested AI image descriptions to be built into the JAWS software. And she used an example of how she's a college student and sometimes is provided charts or graphs and isn't able to get the details out of that without sending it to a third party I and know. how it would be convenient if you can just process that right there within JAWS.
2: Oh, that's brilliant. Um, yeah. Also, Android uh, Police, yes, shared yep. some Google Calendar shortcuts. Let's talk about how we can navigate this tool.
5: Yeah, so uh, Google Calendar Shortcuts, they gave a couple of keystrokes, including the J uh, key and the N key to jump to the previous and next date range. Uh, They also shared information about uh, some other keystrokes that you need to enable by going to your settings of your Google Calendar and then tabbing through to the checkbox that says to turn it on. Once you have those on, you can use the letter S to jump to your settings or T to go to today. Mm. Uh, one through number four will let you switch between day, week, month, and custom view. Um, and the question mark will show what all of the keystrokes are if you need those available for you.
3: What calendar apps do you use? Do you use Google Calendar or what do you use primarily?
5: I... I ran uh, so so this this weekend. I'm doing presentations for a company, and I had three booked, one right after another. And I tell people now my day of or my word of the day for Saturday was trust your calendar because <laughs> I got an email confirmation, and they're like, "Yeah, you started 11. Well, their their social event starts at eleven, so I thought I double booked myself. I am oh, no. using a tool called Fantastical on the iPhone. What I really like about it is it gives you natural language input, which means you can say something like Kelly and Rumia, uh live hit every Monday at eleven ten 10 a.m. And then that adds the event to my calendar automatically and it gives it the reoccurrence. Mm. And one nice thing is while you're on the Mac, you can get your cal- new calendar event uh, menu pop up by simply pressing control option space, and then start typing your event. And if you wanna to check to see how it interpreted it, you hit Vo right arrow. And once you start to trust that calendar, you can tap the enter key and that will automatically add it to you, whatever calendar you're using on your computer.
2: So it's available as a client on the Mac and as an app on the iPhone. Yep. And imports everything else in. Okay, great. Uh, So let's talk about, going back to Google, but Google Docs has keystrokes. Can you remind us what some of these are? Are The popular ones, ones that we should probably remember?
5: Well, if you are familiar with keystrokes in Microsoft Word and a lot of your your apps that you're already using, then the keystrokes in Google Docs are similar. You can do a command forward slash to get a list of the keystrokes in order to get familiar with them. But things like control B will bold your text or control I will italicize it. And then you can also uh, access the menu and command or I'm sorry, option or alt slash will let you search the menu for a menu option that you know is there, but you just don't remember what drop-down menu it's under.
3: Is Google Sheets pretty accessible with keyboard shortcuts as well?
5: Yeah, so it is pretty accessible. You want to disable your virtual viewer or browse mode if you're using JAWS or NVDA, respectively. And then just use your arrow keys to up and down arrow through the columns. Uh, I'm sorry, through yeah, through the columns, and then you can navigate left and right along the row.
2: And going to Gmail, uh, they're dropping basic HTML for users. How can we navigate Gmail in the future because of this?
5: Yeah, so that keystroke, control slash or command slash, is uh, very valuable when it comes to keystrokes. Like Google Calendar, you do need to go into the settings of your Gmail application and enable the keystroke access. And then my favorite keystroke is GI, and that takes you to your inbox. But if you remember, G means go to, and then I for inbox, D for drafts, S for sent. And then C, to compose a new message. And then uh, the last thing is, just remember, disable that virtual viewer and use your arrow keys to navigate the Gmail interface like you normally would navigate Outlook or other email tools.
2: Um, Before we go, Michael, can you just tease this? We won't have enough time to get into it because we're uh, wrapping. But uh, tell us what said app is because you can try out apps on the Mac. And we can talk more yeah, about it Yeah, it's a
5: monthly week. subscription, and we can talk about that next week for sure that allows you to try apps out. And most importantly, in my opinion, the app developers get paid every time you use the app. Oh,
2: so fun. Oh, and I obviously so lied. Not next week, because we're going to be not here. We're doing prime time. But we'll talk to you the week after.
5: Time flies when you're having fun. I didn't realize <laughs> next Monday was already the 27th. I know. That's
2: exactly <laughs> what we were saying, Michael. Thank you so much. We'll chat with you next uh, time
5: you guys have a great rest of your show Almost said it again.
2: Michael Vavcock joins us on Mondays to give us our weekly tech talk and there's a lot that he covers uh, when we meet alright we're going to talk about some things coming up on the headlines I don't have the teaser here but uh, you know what's going on Grant because you're the one leading that Bethany Deer is also going to be joining us after the break on Kelly and Ramia
0: Stick around and learn something new. Kelly and Ramya return with more in a moment.
2: Hello and welcome back. Thanks for continuing to tune in here on Kelly and Ramya. To Kelly and Ramya. I don't know. I think I said something grammatically wrong. But anyways, Kelly is still in the midst of a technical war. And Grant and I are holding down the fort. And Grant, you're playing double duty because we're just about to get into Headlines, as we usually do on Mondays, with Grant Hardy.
3: Hey, I'm Grant Hardy, and welcome to the Headlines segment. I tackle everything from health and lifestyle to accessibility and tech. I have it all right here on Kelly and Ramya.
2: We also have Beth Deer joining us, and she's gonna be uh, conversing with us through these Headlines. Beth,
6: welcome. Thank you very much. I always love the headline segments. There's always so much to talk about. So take it away, Grant. Absolutely.
3: Well, oh, that's really kind. Um, my, so my first article just—we're re- basically talking about two two things today that we talk about a lot: the housing crisis and mm. AI. <laughs> um, but at least they're not—they're uh, not overly negative things. So the first thing relates to people who put their properties up for short-term. Uh, rental on places like Airbnb um, and apparently this week there is going to be some new items in the uh, fiscal policy for the federal government that are trying to make that less lucrative uh, and force course people to pay a little bit more taxes on that uh, so for, for example apparently expenses that you incur related to your uh, rental, those will not be able to be uh, deducted when you're taxed on your income. Uh, And um, that's basically, basically they're saying that you can expect Airbnbs to be much more unattractive from an income Purpose because you're going to be taxed on those quite a lot. Of course, places are already restricting them, and they're basically doing it for a couple reasons. I mean, one, the housing crisis; people are getting kicked out of their homes with hugely high mortgages. The second one, I don't know, Beth, if if you're running into this issue where you are, but where I live, and I think where Romia lives as well, you, you know, people are not able to like actually rent out places at a, a reasonable price. Uh, plus mm-hmm. the fact mm-hmm. and plus the mm-hmm. fact that airbnbs are wholly unattractive to the the neighborhoods in terms of the tragedy of the commons people just yeah exactly uh so curious what your thoughts are on this
2: sorry wait go through that point again about being unattractive for neighborhoods so uh,
3: just essentially it's the tragedy of the commons right where uh, uh, you know in neighborhoods you you know you kind of tend to build a lot of community there's a little bit of you know accountability uh but with airbnbs you often just get you know people who kind of use the place for a big party or you know don't really you know clean up after themselves and what are you gonna do? Go go and talk to them. You know, listen. Can you get better? You know, a few weeks down the road, like they're not they're not going to be there down the road. So just that kind of, yeah. um
6: yeah. I at so many Airbnbs, like in so many different places, and I do think they just get a bad reputation because majority of the time. You know, they are hosting large groups. Like, I remember even this time last year, I stayed at an Airbnb in Toronto, actually. And um, the guy, like, I guess the hosts are told now to, like, have cameras that they can keep an eye on everyone who's staying there. A lot of them have, like, noise devices inside so that if you go over, like, a certain amount of decibels, the host will message you and be like, hey, like, keep it down. So we were in Toronto for a funeral, um and like we had a lot of family staying there there was like 14 of us and um it was not a pet friendly um airbnb and the host came at me calling me a liar because obviously i brought my guide dog patronus with me and uh, i like fought back and forth with him about the fact he's a guide dog he obviously didn't believe me i sent him loads of proof um and he was like hey i won't rate you if you don't rate me i was like cool i hope i educated you yes. <laughs> but i i think like just a lot of the time there's just they have a bad reputation but i've never stayed at an airbnb where like the host hasn't been like what are you guys doing you're making too much noise like even if it's just been like a quiet like
3: time you know (laughs) oh well that's really good to know that's really good to know that and i'll admit that was a little more of uh a little less why i think they're actually doing it it's more to address yeah crisis of unaffordable housing it Um, is unaffordable
2: I mean, it's unaffordable even when you turn to Airbnb for uh, a monthly stay, as an example, right? Like, there are a lot of people who now split their time between home and other locations either due to work or just because of the flexibility that's now offered more than ever before, and people will just go out and and spend time um, elsewhere, and most likely you're going to Airbnbs. Because as you started this conversation, Grant, you didn't necessarily say Airbnb. It was just, like, short-term rentals, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But a lot of people do turn to this as an option obviously and even with that I mean if you look at when Airbnb first became popular first got on the map um, to now the price increase is staggering like whether you're looking for a one-night thing to to hang out for a vacation or whether you're looking at monthly stays I mean regardless it seems to be always popular and ever booked Uh, No matter where you go, especially if it's well-rated and the hosts have good reviews and the locations have good reviews, you tend to find that things are just constantly and consistently booked up. But um, price ranges, I still look at this stuff and I'm like, this is astronomical. This is what I'm paying for a a monthly rental. And it's give or take the amount that I would pay in Toronto for my current rental, you know, for an apartment or whatever it is. And I, I wonder, like, what exactly... Continues to make Airbnb popular, or continues to let it stay popular as it becomes pricey and incredibly difficult to, as you know, you guys have pointed out, communicate with hosts, um, uh, find and guarantee safety or privacy, or all these other things that are, you know, not part of this topic, but just bigger picture scenarios. I, I still wonder, like, but nonetheless, that's the app we go to. This is the the, the booking um, option that we go to before anything else.
3: Yeah, gee, it's so true. And and I'm very curious as well about why that's the case, but maybe it's just pure availability uh, yeah. on its own. Where I was
6: going to just... say, I think it's just, like, convenience. I also think it's the way that the platform is designed. Like, if you, in my opinion at least, like, I find Airbnb – more accessible than maybe Expedia, for example. Like I don't actually know, uh, like I, to navigating but, the, nap, the, the app. The app, yeah. So like it's kind of like not the same thing at all. But like I always turn to Netflix over another streaming service mm. because I'm familiar with that platform. I know how it works, and it's easier for me to navigate than Crate. Yeah. yeah yeah that's, that's fair and just
2: it's an absolutely. all-in-one scenario right like you can look yeah. for all kinds of accommodations and time periods and locations versus doing it uh, all yourself i guess mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but with these new changes i wonder what's going to happen then
3: totally uh listen let's move on and talk about something else kind of interesting real quick uh but ai is doing uh predicting Uh, people who are going to develop Alzheimer's. So researchers have developed artificial intelligence-based approaches. Uh, For example, one algorithm efficiently sorts through large numbers of brain images and picks out ones that have characteristics of Alzheimer's. And a second machine learning method uh, identifies important structural features of the brain, and this effort could help scientists efficiently spot new signs of Alzheimer's in brain scans. This is really cool because uh, it's important to catch it first if you uh, as early on as you can, uh, because apparently if you do that, uh, you can actually help the patients to have as uh, reasonable um, lives as possible. And apparently there are biomarkers in there that are very difficult to for a human to sort of pick out but ais can swiftly scan that genetic data i don't really know how you would get it into the data bank to begin with but i guess that's mm-hmm. maybe the next step i i you know i i curiously you, your thoughts i'm vi- i i view ai sometimes a bit negatively and then i think that it is just going to take a bunch of people's jobs and that's going to be unfortunate mm-hmm. but In a case like this, for stuff that humans just are not very good at doing, sifting through like a million different images, I think this could be very beneficial.
2: Yeah, um, I think this is the ideal use for AI, to be honest with you. There are so many different cases and there's, you know, the social acceptability of it all and how much AI scares us in all different circumstances, especially what you were saying, Grant. Like, where are we just going to go obsolete? Like, do we not use, need to use our brains anymore? But this in the the medical, in the data analysis, in the let's crank like crank into AI everything that we have, all the gatherings of science or whatever data possible uh, on this particular, you know, issue, or it doesn't even necessarily have to be an issue, but this circumstance, and then see what AI comes up with. Because, and I, I heard um, Neil deGrasse Tyson talk about this, and I thought it was really like very well explained for, for science especially, is that it just saves so much time. Right? And it saves so much um, unclear capacity that we have or don't have, or like our lack of capacity as human beings, and just says, AI, we know you're good at this. Let's like optimize the scenario. So, in medicine and in science, particularly, I think data uh, analysis is just the primary way that we can utilize AI without thinking so hard about oh well do we want it to can it really it just I think it can save years of work um for humans
6: yeah absolutely and actually it's interesting I can't remember who you were talking to last week Ramia but like you said you were like I'm really interested to see what AI can do for us in like the medical industry and I'm kind of like you Grant where I'm like I do view it kind of Mm. negatively this you know done some amazing things for, uh, you know us as the blind community i think that there's a lot of things that it's been super super helpful but in the grand scheme of things i'm kind of just like no nah, i'm gonna trust the people <laughs> um yeah. But this i think is so unique and something that is hopefully going to help a lot of people i'm all for this particular mm-hmm. thing and like there's even people in like my family and my husband's family that you know could maybe use this screening i, know. <laughs> I
3: don't know <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's one of those things where I can almost see like a couple of different futures. Like the one future, we all just lose our jobs. We're obsolete. AI can just kind of interact as all of us. And it's like, what in the heck do we do now? Mm. The other future is where AI is just used for super useful applications we have you know a little sort of machine it can hook us up to scans our you know brain for all kinds of stuff uploads it in a privacy friendly way compares it that's really cool
2: yeah yeah like where we optimize ai but know how we can still be the ones to handle it
6: yeah i definitely have exceptions like you know if it can do my dishes and stuff
3: (laughs) (laughs) yeah like it could organize your house like perfectly in ways yeah. you would never think it's, of doing
2: feng shui.
6: <laughs>
2: yeah or maybe it'll tell us how to actually pack the dishwasher correctly because this seems to be a major feud no matter where oh, I, I go yeah. and who i talk to <laughs> uh beth thanks for joining us for headlines thanks for having me Grant, you are most likely going to be back after the break, uh, but thank you for headlines also. After the break on Kelly and Ramya, we're speaking with filmmaker, writer, director, and actor Emily Schooley about her short film called Psyche. This was featured in the most recent episode of Disrupt on AMI+. And we'll find out more about it on the show.
0: Keep it here for more of Kelly and Ramya on AMI-tv.
2: Welcome back. Thanks for sticking around. This is Kelly and Rumia on AMI. Speaking of AMI, lots going on at the network, especially for your entertainment. AMI's new streaming service, AMI Plus, has officially launched it's been about a month and the new platform features a slick modern look um, and puts a emphasis on AMI originals and content at the forefront it's fully compatible with assistive technology as well including screen readers and nav- magnifications on Apple Android on your Microsoft or um, am I saying Microsoft your Windows and Mac platforms also so you can check it out just visit amiplus.ca, and you can find out more there and check out all the content. I'm Ramia Amadin. We're here with Grant Hardy today, and we may have said goodbye altogether with, for, to Kelly McDonald on a Monday, but that's all right. The show must go on. And right now, we're checking in with filmmaker, writer, director, and actress, Emily Schooley she's here to talk about her short film it's called Psyche and it was featured in the most recent episode of Disrupt on AMI Plus uh-huh another thing you can check out on AMI Plus Emily welcome to the show thank you I'm really excited to be here well we're looking forward to talking to you about your work and about this film Psyche Uh, but can you start off by telling us how you got into filmmaking maybe that's a good place for us to get to know you a little
7: Sure. Uh, so I actually started as a theater actor. I trained at the University of Waterloo in the theater department. And shortly after I graduated, I ended up falling backwards into working in film. First, obviously, as an actor. And then shortly after, I started helping with directing, writing, and producing an independent series that I was on. And from there, it just it led me to you know knowing that I have capability and that I have passion for a lot of the work behind the camera.
2: Now, when you say walk, uh, going backwards into, were you avoiding film or was that just not winning your interest when you were doing all the theater?
7: Well, once upon a time when I was a lot younger than I am now, I thought that if I wasn't famous by 25 as an actor, my life would be over. So I was very <laughs> singularly focused on being a performer at one time. Okay. And then for better or worse, I discovered that I'm also both very talented and very capable at directing, at screenwriting, at managing at least the creative elements of production so i kind of joke now that i'm a perpetually overwhelmed octopus because i tend to carry (laughs) two three four of these roles at a time on productions now because you want to
3: (laughs) wear a lot of different hats so let's talk about psyche and maybe if we can start if you can just give us a synopsis brief synopsis of psyche
7: Absolutely. So, Psyche is a film without any dialogue whatsoever, and it's about both the inner and outer life of the characters I play on screen. And essentially, I created this film really as a statement about toxic positivity and that expectation of, you know, we always have to present a happy face to the world or never discuss when things are wrong or when we're having mental health struggles, you know, despite the fact that studies have shown evidence has shown that we as a society do much better when we can hold depth for each other in a lot of these uncomfortable and uncertain times
3: mhm i i know i've i on some of the social justice like communities that i've hung out uh, on people really talk about how toxic positivity is really used to shut down the perspectives of minorities and, and underprivileged people, women, people with disabilities, people of color, et cetera. And I think that's so true. What are your thoughts on that?
7: Absolutely. And, you know, I will share as well that when I made that particular film, I was not in the best place. Um, at the time I was actually in the middle of a years long situation where i was being stalked and harassed by an ex-partner and Mm. his group of friends so that's actually something that i dealt with for almost a decade and it's just at the time you know i was struggling people were expecting me to be over it or not talk about it when you know the trauma that i was facing and faced for a number of years really did impact me deeply
2: Yeah, and this impact that you're talking about, Emily, it's interesting to hear about it being showcased on a a film or your personal experience being channeled towards this kind of topic. Because I think of, you know, the mental health and awareness of, um, for not just personal, right? Like not just your friends and family and close ones, you know, who do you trust around you in your circle? But also the way that we uh view strangers or just you know social media posts as you mentioned toxic positivity this is just like a general scope or general perspectives that are thrown at us every single day like this is how you should be as a human being and those things sometimes um are so far apart from each other like our personal our interactions on a day-to-day versus what the world wants from us and i think that that's going to be a, a deeper discussion as people check out your film
7: Thank you. And absolutely, I would agree where, you know, something I've been told in my own life, and I've seen other people tell others as well, you know, of the, oh, chin up, it's not so bad. And honestly, sometimes there's a lot of power in just having somebody else say, wow, man, that really sucks. I'm sorry. Mm. and Or just being in a position where, you know, if you see another friend struggling, rather than rushing out to try to solve everything for them, maybe even just holding space to really hear them out and make space for your discomfort and holding their discomfort of that. If you kind of get what I'm yes. saying there. Yeah.
3: Yes. yeah.
4: And,
3: and a lot of sort of this, like, if you be positive, you know, positive things will happen. If, even if you're a little underprivileged, if, if, if you're too negative, you know, you can't really expect a lot of good things to happen. Like there's sort of this like victim blaming mentality mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. well. Yeah. Interesting stuff.
2: Yeah. Emily, thank you. Tell us about this award. It's uh, the indie or best indie horror award, and your film received it. Psyche, what's the award, and is this significant for you?
7: Thank you. Yeah, so this was actually the first festival award that any of my films had won, and this was back in, I want to say, 2016, I believe. Mm-hmm. So it was really it was really impactful because, as an audience choice award, it means that the audience who attended that festival, out of all the indie shorts that were screened, They, you know, people resonated with mine the most. They enjoyed mine the most. So for me to be recognized essentially by my peers and by an audience Mm -hmm. to say, hey, your work really moved me, you know, to me, that is really special. So especially because it was the first ever ever festival award that I won, I'm really, really glad to have something, you know, especially in a film that compared to the rest of my projects anyway, it was a lot tinier of a film, I'll say. Okay. In terms of it was a short shoot, you know, I edited it along with performing and directing, and yeah, just it it goes to show the power of story as well that something so small, it's two and a half minutes, would really just resonate with people.
3: Can we chat a little bit about your time? I know you've touched on this a bit, but your time, what was it like working uh, on Disrupt?
7: Uh, so, this is my first season screening something on Disrupt, and I'm honestly honored. I'm very honored to be chosen to be on the show. I'd been reached out to by the producers of the series back over the summer, and you know, they'd asked me if I had any work kind of within the mandate and within the constraints of what they're able to show on the show. So, I'd actually sent them a couple of my short films, Psyche, as well as another one. And of what I sent them, they really like Psyche. And yeah, from there, the film was licensed and then as you know it appeared on the episode that broadcast most recently last week
2: it's really lovely to to have you on and not just to talk about psyche but also about your uh, next project or maybe your most recent uh, however you're seeing it the sweetest goodbye it's hitting the screens in 2024 do you want to tell us a little bit about what this is going to be
7: absolutely so this is our most recent short film under the laughing cat productions banner And this is another project where, you know, I am that perpetually overwhelmed octopus where I wrote the script. I was in front of the camera as the lead character, Clara, as well as co-directing with my cinematographer, Christine, and producing with my producing partner, Alicia Ramdeo. Now, um, this film is something that I'd say in a way kind of builds on my own body of work as as a filmmaker. And I play a woman who is about to undergo MAID. Now, I'm sure, as a lot of people who watch AMI know, with the expansions of Bill C-11 here in Canada, MAID is now being opened up to people for mental health reasons and for other reasons of what we call human suffering, but may not have a terminal illness in sight. Now, for me personally, you know, I'm somebody who believes that, much like we do for our pets, anybody who wants to choose a safe death should have that choice absolutely but at the same time just because you know people with disabilities people living in poverty so many of us here in canada and beyond we're starting to fall through the cracks mm-hmm. where we're underfunded we don't have adequate support for food for medication you know maybe even to get to health care appointments There's so many psychosocial factors that with the expansion of bill c11 it just it makes death the easiest option when it should not be the first choice so a lot of my work kind of lives at this intersection of social impact meets really strong but non-traditional narrative storytelling so in some ways the sweetest goodbye is very much a continuation of kind of those themes in my work but i'm also hoping to share it with worldwide film festivals just to you know get the message and the awareness out of what's going on here in canada Because a lot of people who aren't connected to the disability community just don't know that this is going on. Right. And I can imagine just the breadth
2: of this conversation or this perspective uh, and how you're going to tell it must be a challenge in and of itself, just to to feel out where it is you're coming from to tell this story. So do you search within or do you go out for the inspiration of how to tell the story?
7: So... Most of my work is what I kind of call, it's an alchemy of my own experiences, both good and bad, plus fictionalized elements, ideas that come to me. And plus, honestly, just a little bit of magic and creativity and I'll say specialness as well. Um, The the original impetus of this film actually came about two or three years ago. And at the time I was actually reading up on Nora Ephron's death. Uh, Nora Ephron obviously being very... Famous filmmaker. A lot of people know her work. Um, I was inspired by it as a younger filmmaker as well. And just kind of reading about, you know, how she didn't tell anybody about her deaths, that sort of triggered something in me. And before I knew it, this very non-traditional story came pouring out. Um, now, The Sweetest Goodbye, it's probably not the traditional story you'd expect to see here. It's actually a conversation between two women so, one is the character that I play, and the other is her best friend. And her best friend has just found out about my character's choice to undergo maid. So, most of the film is actually uh, the other character, whose name is Sky, confronting my character about her decision, trying to talk her out of it. So, the way that I approach this film, um, honestly, what I want audiences to walk away from it with is just the idea that this is a tragedy that Clara, my character's death, could have been prevented. And, you know, I hope I do it. I hope I've executed this in a way that's effective, but it's really all about just kind of letting the audience into Clara's world right. and, you know, seeing the ways in which she's vulnerable, seeing the ways in which society has failed her.
3: Yeah, that that's really the, the tragedy for me is, is not that we have made, but that we're using it in this country, country or could theoretically use it as an easy way out. So really looking forward to checking that out.
2: Yes. Emily, thank you. It's been so pleasant spending this time with you. And I I love all the insight you've given us um, on your projects and your work. And I appreciate that uh, you're sharing all this stuff with us.
7: Thank you so much for having me on. Okay, Well, good
2: luck and all the best. We'll chat with you, hopefully down the line. We were speaking with filmmaker, writer, director and actress Emily Schooley talking about her short film Psyche to start off the conversation, which is uh, featured on Disrupt on AMI-tv. You can stream it on AMI Plus as well and look forward to 2024 when The Sweetest Goodbye, her latest work, is coming out. In the next hour of Kelly and Ramia, we have Know Your Rights with Daniel McLaughlin. She's chatting with Professor Laverne Jacobs. The conversation is around human rights uh, and disability law. Also. We're talking to community reporter Mathieu Rochette about described performances taking place at the Mason Theatre in Montréal. And after the break, we have two upcoming holiday shows at the Grand Theatre in London, Ontario. We'll learn more about that with community reporter Annette Dennis. Dennis we'll be back. Keep
0: it here for more of Kelly and Ramya on AMI-tv.
2: If you're hanging out with us, this is Kelly and Ramya on AMI. We're just kicking off hour two. We have two whole hours every single day that we hang out with you. And sometimes we're as surprised as you are on what we have on the show. Grant Hardy, I think it was a surprise for you that you're going to be sitting down for two hours with me. But it's been a swell time so far. Uh, Had lots of tech... (laughs) <laughs> Lots of tech conversations in the first hour, along with some performance and um, art discussion with Emily Schooley, who we just wrapped up with before the break. Uh, and I thought, as we uh, navigate and get, get Annette Dennis, our community reporter, settled in for a conversation, let's talk quickly about this, OK? A company is out with a list of the 200 worst passwords that people use on the Internet. Hmm.
0: Mel Brooks nailed it in 1987 when he wrote the movie Spaceballs.
1: So the combination is 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. That's
0: the stupidest combination I ever heard in my life! (laughs) Yet 36 years later, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6 remains the world's most popular password. And popular, of course, means easy to guess. The passkey company NordPass has scoured the internet, including the dark web, to compile a list of the 200 worst passwords. And found that password is at number (laughs) 7. At 20, user. NordPass says 86 percent of all hacks use stolen credentials. Jim Ryan, ABC News.
2: I love how they always just add in like a side <laughs> note at the end there. But um, okay, so one, two, three, four, five, six. What's interesting to me is Grant that that some uh, scenarios will only allow four-digit pins, and then others five-digit, and others six-digit. So this is where I get frustrated because yes, I am a not a repeat password user, just like one thing everywhere, but I have a you know few I won't tell you how many that I go to. But then and when there are restrictions, I was like, oh crap. now I gotta like manipulate my password to move uh, th- to make this fit into these credentials. Now you are a, I think, much responsible tech person than I am. Are you good with your password management and uh, security
3: i'm I'm pretty decent there are always some accounts to clean up but as one, one technique that i've uh, try and use that's super useful it's called diceware so it sounds really complicated but basically the idea is to choose a few different random words and put them together like dictionary kelly desk hornet you know words that don't mean anything they're just random words but if you do that your passwords can be surprisingly easy to remember and type in Mm. and they're very secure
2: but then you're supposed to remember the sequence of the words as well that's where i'd
3: screw up just come up with a sentence in in your head (laughs) kind of yeah i know i know it's incredibly uh It's incredibly difficult. And like you said, it's amazing how my beloved randomgamingforum.com that I always bring up Mm. can have super secure passwords. But the stuff that's really important, your bank or your phone or whatever, they just have like a little pin. I know.
2: Oh, yeah, exactly. (laughs) And then what, you know, I know that this is supposed to be part of the security when you get forced out of a password that you've been using and they say, hey, reset, you gotta. Uh, I understand that to the degree that i could understand it that hey yeah we need to change our yeah. passwords often enough but then you know what most of us are doing is just changing like one character in the password right instead of an exclamation oh. i'll just use the at sign now and don't think that's helping for security
3: yeah i just can't believe you just gave out one, i didn't two, three, do four, that five, six. i better change my <laughs> AMI password now exactly. no, i'm just kidding i'm just exactly. kidding uh should we move on yeah you want it oh, uh, sounds like we've got our guest that is right
2: we have a community report mondays tuesdays wednesdays to kick off the second hour of the show we bring in a community reporter we check in on disability news and just fun things around the country uh and today we're going to london ontario or just that surrounding area of southwestern ontario with annette dennis Annette, how's it going with you i'm good how are you guys it feels like a very long time and feels like uh, <laughs> we've not heard about london in a while so i'm looking forward to what you got lined up for us
8: yeah absolutely yeah mm-hmm. well where do
2: you want to start we have a, a crafted exhibition for uh, creativity yeah. Uh,
8: yeah yeah so this uh, the Crafted Exhibition is taking place at the TAP Center for Creativity, which is located at 203 Dundas Street here in London. And it starts, it runs from November 21st to December 23rd, uh, Tuesdays through Saturday, um, 12 noon until 5 p.m.
3: I, I always, I really dig these because I just feel like they're very universal. We talked about this before, but you always have that, that, you know, that person on your list that, like, oh, I only like technology. This other person, oh, I only like books. You got to give me the perfect book. But a, a craft fair, I feel like, is something where you can kind of, like, get get something for everyone, and it's all has that homemade feel, so people are pretty happy with those, hey?
8: Absolutely, absolutely. And I, I love how it they call it, it's a crafted exhibition. So in their main... Um, uh, space in in the in the center. They're gonna have a wide range of basically handmade creations from local artists, crafters, and you know, so you can find something, you know, for yourself <laughs> or you can get mm-hmm. nice unique gifts, whether it's Christmas, birthdays, or just special occasions. And and some of the things, I think this is their sixth year. They had to kind of go do little different things last year in the year before but so now they're back excited to be back in their space and they can find different things like um, handmade wooden toys pottery jewelry fabric art uh, paintings glass art um, and just very unique wares from from local artists and uh it's kind of it's like a really fun unique one-of-a-kind sort of um opportunity to get some really fun gifts
2: I would love just hearing about the process that people, I mean, I am useless with arts and crafts and everything ends up being a, um, what do you call that? When there's no specific thing that you're making, like abstract, everything is abstract because I can't, I can't do anything, but
3: it's like, it's, yeah, it's like when those adults used to say like, oh, it, it's, it's beautiful. What, 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 what is, is this?
2: What, <laughs> oh, what do you want it to be? It's all interpretation. <laughs> That's the story of my life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, the process behind um, making glassware particularly or uh, just things that people do in the kinds of, not just concentration, but, um, you know, how well they do it would be so nice to learn about when you have conversations. Oh,
8: absolutely. And they're going to have an open reception um on the friday uh this coming friday from 5 until 8 p.m and uh like the display is set up during the week that, that they will have the the artists there so if people want to come in and actually chat with the people behind the products and yeah. the, and the craft oh. stuff they'll be there um and folks can uh check out the website tap if they want to get more details about uh the, the art project or, or other things they have they have lots of opportunities for for up-and-coming artists to showcase and 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 it's a really wonderful place space to, mm-hmm. to connect with
3: that community oh that's really kind of sweet that mm-hmm. a sign that the holidays are are finally near yeah speaking of holidays do we want to talk about there are two holiday shows coming up at the grand theater uh do we want to talk a little bit about those
8: yeah yeah so these are both taking place at the grand and that's at 471 richmond street here in london first off is charlie and the chocolate factory and this runs from november 21st to the 24th so it's the christmas show and that's at the main stage tickets range from 42 to 98 dollars And I think most people are familiar with, with either the book or the films, Um, but basically this is Willy Wonka, the world famous candy maker is opening his, the gates to his mysterious chocolate factory, but only to a lucky few. And among them is young Charlie Bucket who joins four other golden ticket winners to embark upon an adventure through um, Wonka's wild and wondrous world. And so this is a musical. And they will be um, featuring um, songs from the beloved original film, as well as um, um, a score from songwriters from Hairspray. So it sounds like a really fun one. I, I've never heard of the musical version. So it looks like a, for young and old alike. That's what I love, these old classics. It's a, a nice family uh, sort of opportunity to celebrate and get together.
2: Mm-hmm. So live music, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay, and they do give us, and I love this, these kind of accessibility notes um, around theater shows, most often now than not, uh, where they tell you, you know, what the environment's gonna be like, the lighting, the the sound levels, right?
8: Yeah, yeah. So they do do a warning and advisory of it feed the, the production will feature atmospheric atmosphere, the haze, moving pro- projections, flash. And with that said, they are having a relaxed performance where everything will be toned down. Um, and that is taking place on Sunday, December 10th in the afternoon. So if folks want to go to a little bit more low key performance, there is one scheduled um, to take advantage of. Annette,
2: have you been to a musical lately or remember the last musical you've been to? Are you a fan?
8: I, you, you know, I have been I have been to musicals. I, it's not my cup of tea, but I have enjoyed several. I know I've been to some um, at the uh, in a uh, uh, brand event. I did go to one with my mom. My mom and I were in Toronto years ago, and I can't remember. We saw one, at, uh, oh, amazing musical, mm. and uh, I can't remember what it was called though. It was a rock one, but it was really we both really enjoyed it. Okay. But. The live music is usually what actually
2: I love about it, even if I'm not necessarily a musical fan. Well, I don't like watching musicals on TV, but the live music aspect of it is just so... uh, It embraces you, right? How about you, Grant?
8: The energy, yeah. Yes,
2: yeah. Yeah,
3: surprisingly, I'm not actually a huge fan of musicals either, which is kind of interesting. Although sometimes if, if they're really good, I... Will I uh, will get into them, but I went to one where it was literally like the entire thing was singing. There was no talking at all, uh and I was like, like Les that Mis? Was a... <laughs> it was like Miz, yeah, I don't know if I should drop the name, but <laughs> and that was a bit much for me. The no talking, yeah. but it's a cool entertainment style, though for sure,
2: not just no talking, but hours of it.
4: Hours, mm.
8: anyways, <laughs>
2: we did not. It's
8: nice to have a nice blend of both. both yeah. Uh... Mm-hmm. Dialogue Better, or music peppered throughout. Yeah,
2: yeah, because it also just gives you opera vibes, right? Okay, Annette. One more thing. Speaking of music, uh, there's a chamber choir Christmas concert. You want to shout out?
8: Yeah. Okay. So this is taking place. Um, yeah, it's called "So Welcome Yule," and this is the King's University College Chamber Choir. It's their Christmas concert. It's Saturday, December second. From 3 to 5 p.m., doors open at 2, and this is taking place at the Chapel at Windermere-on-the-Mount, which is 1486 Richmond Street here in London. Um, so with Welcome Yule, the King's University College Chamber Choir, that's a muffle, will present uh, a musical feast of festive and reflective songs of the Christmas season, They uh, featuring... Benjamin Britten's mystical masterpiece called *A Ceremony of Carols*, and it is going to have a special guest artist, a harpist, Kathleen uh, Gagan, I think is how you say it. I said that wrong. Um, And admission is um, by a free will donation, and the proceeds will be going to uh, the health and homeless movement for change. Um, and they, the, the choir, they um, worked out established in 2010 and they've won um, a local, it's called the Forest City London Music Awards for Best Choral Group Classical. And they've won it three times over the years. So it sounds like a really uh, a, a wonderful experience if that's kind of uh, something you're interested in. And folks, if they can reserve tickets uh, online and they can just go to ticketsource.us and then you just search in the uh, Welcome Yule, or you can alternatively, um, folks can call 519-518-0250 and then just indicate in the voice meshes your name, how many seats you want, and your email address, and they will get
2: Cool, we'll support the young people and the uh, young choirs as well, because we know these programs, uh, they live for the community's support, right? And Absolutely. Yeah, Annette, I lied, you have one more thing you wanna shout out. This is uh, Downtown for the Holidays.
8: Yeah, so this is just kind of... um, They're just promoting all the fun. Free activities are happening for the rest of November into December. Um, Basically, lots of free things for families, kids of all ages. Um, The traditional, the the tried and true, the lighting of the lights in Victoria Park happening this Friday. The Holly Jolly Holiday Market at the market, which is an outdoor market where they have tons of fun things to do. And then New Year's Eve in the park. They also have... um, Other things, um, they're gonna have, there's a carousel that's gonna be set just outside of Budweiser Gardens. Um, And also there's gonna be horse-drawn carriages. So folks can basically, and there's lots of other things like where you can see the lights, observe the lights from City Hall. And it's all, um, if folks wanna find out more, they can just um, go to the website, which is downtownfortheholidays.ca or just search on Instagram, Facebook, and you can find out all the details about fun activities. Um, you know, they have a, for instance, there's a, a little alley by a, a restaurant called Spaghetti Eddie's downtown, and they have it decorated with lights and everything so people can go and do like, you know, fun uh, photos with their friends or family. So lots, lots of fun things mm. to, to keep you occupied.
2: And lots of fun things you bring to these community reports, Annette. Thank you so much.
8: Mm-hmm. Nice talking to you guys. Take it easy. You too.
2: Annette Dennis is our community reporter in southwestern Ontario. She um, joins us from London, Ontario as well, and will be back next month. We got a double dose of these today. Mathieu Rochette, who uh, didn't get to join us last time, earlier this month, is going to join us after the break, tell us about some audio-described performances going on in Montreal. We'll be right back. It's Kelly and Ramia.
0: Don't go away. There's more great conversation with Kelly and Ramya right around the corner.
2: You know, we used to do kind of word of the day situations here on Kelly and Rumia When we were new and fresh and young, uh, somebody in the control room would give us a word and then we'd have to drop it at some point during the show. It was so fun. We upgraded to phrases. And now I'm thinking, because over the break, you told me about your new favorite word, Roth. <laughs> I feel like we need to bring this back. Uh, I know. I'm just letting people in. Hopefully no one is hearing this, because then tomorrow when we say something ridiculous, um, people won't be like, what? But, you know, it's a fun thing to have in the background. Okay. So I'm putting it out there. We're going to start doing word of the days again.
3: Yeah. No, exactly. I, I think y- your word, your word for every day, though, should be mind boggling.
2: <laughs> no, no, that one's off. It's done. Okay. <laughs> it's Maybe expired. Roth. Maybe wrong. Okay.
3: <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. Well, it's time to, uh, as you mentioned before the break, uh, to check in with another one of our community reporters, and today that is Matthew Roch- Rochette, uh, and he joins us now with some news from Montreal, Quebec. Hey, Matthew, how's it going?
9: Hi. How are you guys? Good. We're doing
3: pretty good.
9: Um, so I can let's... see that Kelly is not here. One more time.
2: Oh, none of Kelly. us sound like Kelly. Well, yeah, he's not here.
9: <laughs> <laughs> none of us sounds like Kelly, no. Nope. Oh, okay. Kelly i'm glad to see not... you guys well i mean hear you but
2: thanks matt yeah don't miss kelly it's too just, much
9: it's just been months now <laughs> that i uh kelly and i were probably play ghosts.
2: you're not the first one to mention that there are a lot uh-huh. of people who come on here just monthly and haven't had a kelly appearance in a while so
9: i was ready to tease him with the with our cook gray of yesterday oh yeah bad
2: hmm. yeah just gonna have to wait oh. till december maybe
9: i guess right
3: (laughs) see if our technical problems are fixed by december and i think to use my word of the day i i suspect kelly is very wroth about the technical problems (laughs) which means very angry that's an archaic word all right matthew uh met you let's get in you've got some good topics here starting with la maison Théâtre present, uh, presenting 176 steps described performance. Can you tell us about that?
9: Yeah, exactly. So, um, oh, unfortunately, the next week for people who's living in Quebec, especially in Montreal, knows that we have a lot of strikes going on with our educational system, health. So there's a lot of parents will be... Yeah, forced to stay home because the kiddo will be not for the next three days at least will stay home. So here's an idea, guys, that you might be interested about. The Maison du Théâtre presents uh, 166, pas, 166 steps. Um, so that will be present in audio description. It's dedicated for kids uh, of six to ten years old and it is quite, really, the, the, yeah, the story is quite amazing. I really like the idea. So we have oh, uh, Octave, who's plays piano extraordinarily well. And he's used to stay in his quiet place with his mom in his hand. And the time comes that he has to leave home, and he just literally breathes. And the other end we have Delphine who's more, an, you know, a curious, curious person-like adventure, who her nemesis is mostly school. And that's how both characters will meet each other and start to build a strong and amu- an amazing uh, French relation. So the greatest part about it, besides that it's, again, an audio description, I know, Romia, we, uh, I bring, many times different uh, event now that are presenting in audio description. And Mm -hmm. I said many times, I hope one day it'll be just a standard. And I just read an article last week from Radio Canada, uh, that apparently there is not only me who noticed, there's more and more and more. And it looked like we were going there. Sure, slowly, but surely, which is really, really amazing. And most of the time, those kind of play that says like, yeah, he's love playing music and yeah, no guitar, whatever the instrumental, this, but it's not necessarily all the time, you know, that great. This time it's Ariane Moffat, who she is, uh, I don't know if she's that famous outside of Quebec, but in francophonie in general, she's a well-known, she is really outstanding Mm -hmm. so that's her who written all the music we're gonna hear uh all the time that the play will go on um and it's mostly uh simon boulot as well written and presenting organized the play so guys that will be really an extraordinary opportunity to go there
3: um
9: it's during the day. For most uh, of the time that I saw, it's at 1 p.m. There's other time zones, so I invite you to just simply go at MaisonTheatre.com. All informations are there, and it's until the 26th of November. It's already it did start from the 15th, so have fun. Fantastic. It's not expensive, and it might be a great time to go with your kids.
2: Yeah, of course, and um, as always, leading into the holidays and everything that's expected this time of year for different opportunities to check out theatre especially. And Matt, we were talking in the last segment about theater notes, right? Just general accessibility notes in the theater uh, being more prevalent nowadays, like, hey, this is what the noise level is going to be like, FYI, content warning, all that kind of stuff where accessibility is just seeping more and more into general conversation. Also, relaxed performances, you know, the availability of different things like that. Uh, So, yeah, I hope two, that most things at least, or at this venue, most things, that kind of thing, will become more normal as we um, talk audio description and accessible performances.
9: Yeah, and even if it's gonna become the normal, I, I, I hate to say normal, but mm-hmm. let's use it mm-hmm. for the- Like regular. <laughs> normal yeah. situation, I still gonna talk about it because I know, we all know what it was that was numb, Yes, so, of course. Right, when it's good, I'm talking about when it's bad also do the same so <laughs> let's yeah. get be fair for everyone.
2: <laughs> yeah, f- definitely. And with certain kinds of theater or performance or art, we know that the experiences are still very not accessible right we know yes. that opera for example is an ex- is a, a great yeah. thing to point out to be like yeah. there are projects in the work there are initiatives that some people have started but it's not something you would turn to and say yeah opera is accessible in most places so anyway um yeah. it
9: has to start somewhere yeah exactly <laughs>
2: let's move to the lions foundation of canada uh, dog guides you wanted to shout this organization out and the initiative
9: yeah well i don't know how is often is Club Lyon or uh, non outside of Quebec, I I do so I I guess so though. Um, so basically, guys, for beginner Club de Lyon or there, their my mission is for for us. They are there to uh, support, help us in different kind of projects. And I mm. personally did not know that they also now do guide dog. I read that it's it's been years, but I um, I, I did not know. So anyway. Now I know and they they have fifteen training guide dogs available to be paired with uh with someone um till the November twenty-seventh. So I was I brought this because I was like I like I know there is Mira, there is Seinabi also do guide dogs training, there is few schools and states. So I was greatly su- surprised to have one more great school uh, that people can, can go. Because, it guys, it takes time to train dogs. It takes a lot of money. And um, it's not when they're they, 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 they starting to train a dog that all dogs will come to the end that, okay, that is these trains a lot of them just cannot do it and it's not because they're not good dog it's just because it is what it is not everyone or or uh or really good, uh, or good. yeah well are, are good. good to to reach the, the final step so and for people who like to have a guide dog just there's a nice accessible documentary um on the website sorry guys i have trouble with my voice i was sick for all of these <laughs> sorry oh, there's so much stuff um, going around yeah i know but it doesn't sound good um yeah. it's just when you apply to have a guide dog just be sure this is really what you wanted because it takes so much time to train one just just be sure that you know you, you just that is not just okay i want a guide dog and next week uh, no it's not for yeah, me anymore I, it's it's absolutely. a huge responsibility and and they are honestly i i i think a few uh, months ago i spoke about how sometimes treats were not that good in my neighbor guide dog when it's yeah, my, when it's time oh sorry
3: it's it's one of those things where you really want to be sure. You really want to be certain. And all the schools have the different training perspectives. It's literally like yes. Apple versus Android. Everybody yeah. has their own perspective. Exactly. We gotta run. We are out of time. But really oh. appreciate you coming coming on. Great topics, man. Hey, take care,
9: guys. Ma- I'll see you uh, next month. Okay.
3: Matthew Rochette is our community reporter in Montreal, Quebec. Thanks, Matt
2: just have to pass on the message that he really missed Kelly um after the break (laughs) after the break Danielle McLaughlin has know your rights for us and this is a conversation that she's having with uh, Professor Laverne Jacobs on disability and human rights law lots to get into in the little amount of time we have we'll be right back on Kelly and Ramia
0: It's fun, insightful, and inclusive. Kelly and Ramya return in a minute.
2: Mondays. Mondays are a very interesting day of the week. A lot of us coming back into our 9 to 5s, and sometimes it's productive. Sometimes we're maybe a little bit still lethargic and hungover from the weekend. It's just an interesting day, and you can start on on the right foot, or maybe it's a little more of a drag-your-feet situation. But if you're tuning into Kelly and Romeo, we have a reliable Informative and excellent educational conversation every week on Mondays. This is Know Your Rights with Danielle McLaughlin.
10: Did you know that everyone has rights? No matter who we are, we all qualify. But what happens when freedoms collide? The answers are rarely simple, but always interesting. Join me, Danielle McLaughlin, to talk about civil liberties and human rights on Know Your Rights. Thanks, guys. Uh, I'm absolutely delighted today. We are so fortunate to have a special guest with us. Professor Laverne Jacobs is a law professor at the University of Windsor, specializing in disability and human rights law and directing the Law Disability and Change Project. Professor Jacobs is the first Canadian to have been elected to serve on the UN Committee on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities Welcome to Kelly and Ramya, Professor Jacobs.
11: Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
10: Uh, it's a, it's a, a big pleasure for us. Now, you have made such a significant contribution to our understanding of disability rights in Canada and around the world. I hardly know where to start. Perhaps you we could ask you, firstly, to tell us about the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities on whose committee you serve. What is it, and and what does it do?
11: Absolutely. The Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities is an international treaty that sets out in detail the rights of persons with disabilities and what countries must do in order to protect those rights. It's also the first international human rights treaty of the 21st century, and um, it's the only one that's designed specifically to protect the rights of persons with disabilities. Uh, It joins um, a group of international human rights treaties that protect the rights of marginalized communities, such as the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women and the uh, Convention on the Elimination of All uh, Forms of Racial Discrimination. And so uh, the CRPD, in 30-some-odd articles, uh, really sets the stage um, for how to Uh, protect and further the rights of persons with disabilities around the world.
10: What is Canada's role on this committee?
11: Well, the convention sets out a committee that is designed to implement, uh, first of all, monitor how well countries are doing and help to implement, so help those countries to implement the convention. Um, there are 18 independent experts who sit on the uh, committee, and they are elected from countries uh, that have ratified the the convention. Um, so Canada is a country that's ratified the convention, but it's important to note that um, although countries have ratified and there are individuals who are elected by the the body of um, of countries that have ratified the the convention, Every individual who sits on the committee is an independent expert. So we don't represent the the views of our home country. Um, We really are there in our own independent uh, merit. Um, In order to become a a member of the committee, it's uh, important to have um, expertise. So expertise in the convention and expertise in disability rights and how how to implement them. Um as well as um you know support from disability communities, uh disability um rights organizations in the country. So Canada um doesn't per se have a role, but uh this is the first time that an individual from Canada is sitting on the committee.
10: Wow. So it, it it's it's more importantly, it's your role on the committee than than specifically the role as a representative of Canada. You represent your own expertise, which is
11: terribly important.
10: Are there decisions that have been made by this uh, committee that you can tell us about?
11: Absolutely. And maybe I can start by giving a bit of information, a bit of background on the types of roles, the types of things that the committee does. So um, as you've referred to decisions, I'll start by saying that uh, if an individual who is a national of a country that has ratified the uh, committee and signed the Optional Protocol um, is concerned that rights might be their rights might have been violated by the state party, um, they can bring um, they can bring a complaint. It's called an individual communication um, through the UN channels before the committee. So, you know, in order to do this, it's necessary that the individual has exhausted all potential, um, you know, appeals and um, uh, routes of uh, recourse within the domestic country. Um, But uh, once they have done so, they're, you know, they can bring a matter before the committee and the committee will rule on whether or not um, there has been a violation. So that's one of the roles of the committee. Um, in that regard, there has been a recent decision just this year that I think is of note. It deals with post-secondary education. Uh, it's called Garcia Vara. Um, and it deals with uh, a woman who applied for a Bachelor of Visual Arts degree um, in Mexico. She was a Mexican national. Um, in the process, uh, she wasn't provided any accommodations. She had uh, intellectual disabilities, and she identifies as a person who um, whose intellectual disabilities affect her learning processes, she wasn't provided with any accommodations. Um, and ultimately, she wasn't admitted. Uh, the university indicated that they were very, um, you know, fixed on having kind of um, the same type of application process for everyone. In the end, the uh, CRPD committee found that the approach taken by the university did not comply with uh the convention so in particular article 24 of the convention provides a right to education at uh you know including at the tertiary level at the post-secondary level Um, uh, accommodations are required for uh, this right of education to be uh, realized and moreover there is um, within the general comments of the committee, uh, a general comment on accessibility, which indicates that um, accessibility must be provided within the educational context as well. So there are a number of systemic and individual remedies, but um, overall the uh, the bottom line is that it, this decision really underscores the importance of having a uh, reasonable accommodation within education, including within the admissions process. So i've mentioned um decisions but there are some other um other uh quite significant roles that the convention, the committee takes on and um another role within its mandate is to conduct um reviews of countries so the reviews are done by receiving uh, not only the report of the state party but shadow reports from um from you know NGOs and other organizations of persons with disabilities, that often show us the lived experience and how what the country uh, has accomplished or not accomplished is affecting people with disabilities on the ground in the country. Um, we then engage in what's called a constructive dialogue with the um, country in order to you know kind of get more information about what's going on and also to um, suggest ways of improving. So um, that's a second uh, function of the committee. Um, another function is to conduct inquiries. And so uh, if there is reasonable evidence to suggest that there are systemic violations in the country um, of disability rights, uh, it's possible for a country that signed the optional protocol to um, to bring forward a request for an inquiry to take place and you know we do follow-ups to those inquiries as well there's one uh, follow-up going on right now for the uk and the final thing i'll mention um well two quick things one is uh, we publish general comments which help to um help countries to interpret the the convention so to know how the articles of the convention should be interpreted and we also um issue statements um, and guidelines. For example, we have had a statement on uh, pursuing the importance of pursuing the institutionalization for persons with disabilities. And respect, with respect to guidelines, we have just um, over a year ago, we published um, a set of guidelines on deinstitutionalization, including in emergencies. And um, we, you know, had a, a panel on deinstitutionalization to uh, to commemorate uh, its uh, development um, in August, so I will stop there. <laughs> Thanks.
10: That's a lot of work. That's that's amazing. <laughs> so, citizens of countries that are signatories to the convention, um, is it by reading uh, your reports or, you know, what other ways can can they figure out how their country is doing with regard to the rights of persons with disabilities?
11: Oh, it's such an excellent question, Danielle. And so um, one of the principal ways of knowing how a country is doing is to look at the concluding observations that come out of the uh, constructive dialogue. So every four years, the countries are supposed to um, you know, report on how they're doing and go through this constructive dialogue. At the end of the process, the committee uh, sits down and um you know, summarizes what needs to be done and what's been done well. And the document that um, includes that summary or that, you know, contains that summary is called concluding observations. So those concluding observations are available on the UN website. Um, Other ways, though, of knowing or having a sense of how a country is doing you know as a person who is um you know part of a country that's uh, you know ratified a citizen of a country that's ratified the convention is to keep in touch with organizations of persons with disabilities and you know to see um you know what kinds of experiences uh people are having or you know and also to share one's own experiences so that's what i would i would suggest
10: those those are important things so you know and i guess there's a certain amount of media like ami which uh, you know makes sure that that we know what's going on with regard to people with disabilities in our in our own country i understand that one of your particular areas of concern has been the right to an education for people with disabilities what are some of the ways that Canada has worked or perhaps needs to work more to protect these rights?
11: Oh, thanks. That's uh, an excellent question. And yes, um, as an academic, I am very interested in uh, the right to education. And most recently, I've been um, working on the right to post-secondary education or access to post-secondary education. Um, I recently published a, a study that looked at human rights tribunal decisions in Canada over a seven year period. And some of the major findings um, show that there are barriers um, at the level of admissions, um, at the level of in-program accommodations, uh, as well as um, something I've termed legal barriers. So with respect to the first of those admissions, um, one sees um, a lack of accommodations in standardized testing. So, um, you know, a lot of uh, admissions processes, particularly for professional programs, focus on having some sort of standardized test. And uh, like the LSAT uh, can... for for like... law
10: students, for example.
11: Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And so, what uh, what I found is that. Um, when you look at um, standardized testing and you um, uh, you know and and uh, accommodations are sought and um, often refused, the reasoning behind all of that often deals with um, a certain amount of faith or a bias towards standardized testing as a form of test that will provide, Objective um, results. Objective results in terms of the strengths and weaknesses of the applicants. So this isn't necessarily the case. You know, it yes. hasn't necessarily been proven that standardized testing will um, will be uh, the way to to find out uh, how well someone will do in a, a program. Um, But what we also found, and I had uh, research assistants uh, work with me from the Law, Disability and Social Change Project, what we also found is that students or or applicants are often asked for an incredible amount of evidence. And sometimes it's very specific medical evidence. You know, a specific medical test is required if you are seeking accommodation so that you don't have to write a standardized test. Um, You know, this actually uh, is a... Um, another manifestation, I mean, we see this in other places as well, the requests for specific types of tests and large volumes of medical evidence. We see this in in-program accommodations quite often uh, as well. But, um, you know, the admissions barriers, that's one of the the major ones that we, we saw. Um, another concern, and this relates to admissions as well, deals with funding and um, it appears that sometimes there is a disconnect between the goals of funding programs for students with disabilities and um, you know what students with disabilities actually seek to achieve. Moreover, there can be a disconnect between what uh, funding programs uh, see as the ultimate goal um, for students with disabilities and Article 24 of the convention, which provides for a right to education and um, stresses the importance of providing um, ways for students with disabilities to maximize their potential uh, their abilities you know their talents and skills and so um, just to give an example you know there may be funding programs out there we came across one that um, emphasizes vocational skills and trades, you know, and so it becomes very difficult for a student looking to pursue a liberal education or a liberal arts education or, a, a you know, other types of um, education that uh, may even take them beyond one degree, but um, that emphasize different skills and vocational skills uh, and trades. Um, it becomes very difficult for a student of that nature to receive funding
10: so, These are really I important yeah. um, uh, issues, and I, I think sometimes simply asking somebody to prove that they have a disability or medical, uh, you know, medical records is in of itself a, a barrier. Some people would not want to go much farther than that. So I think you've brought up extremely important um, issues here, and I really thank you so much for joining us. I have about a thousand more questions I would like to ask you. So I am going to ask you if it's okay to invite you back in the new year to uh, join us and and talk some more about the work that you're doing. I think it's such important work. Thank you so much.
11: Thank you, Danielle. And yes, I'd be pleased to come back. Thanks so much. (laughs)
10: Lovely. Thank you. That was my special guest, Professor Laverne Jacobs of the University of Windsor Faculty of Law, talking with us today about her role on the United Nations Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities and on some of the issues that she has experienced. Thank you.
2: I do hope Professor Laverne Jacobs comes back on Know Your Rights for another discussion with Danielle McLaughlin. There's always a lot to learn uh, in this field when we talk Know Your Rights with Danielle on Mondays. Taking a break, Grant and I will be back to wrap up the show with you. We're going to tell you what's coming up on Now with Dave Brown. That's the Tuesday morning edition. And uh, we have some ways that we want to wrap up the show with a closing moment. We'll be right back.
0: We'll be back with more of Kelly and Ramya after this short break.
2: We're wrapping up the show here with you. Just a few minutes to spare. So let's squeeze in all this housekeeping. Number one, we have availability of Kelly and Rumia on your favorite podcast platform. So if you missed any of the original airings or repeats on both AMI-TV or AMI-audio, no frets. You can go to your favorite podcast platform, type in Kelly and Rumia, and you will find us there in full show format and available as segments the easier to share with people also available on podcast is now with dave brown this is our morning show on amitv starting at 9 a.m eastern time every weekday with dave brown your host and here's what's coming up on the tuesday morning edition alex smite will present an interview from the recent 2023 uh 2023 Odin Rethinking Disability Conference, and they're discussing the role of artificial intelligence on people with disabilities when it comes to employment. Also, Lawrence Gunther will talk about the recent advisory from the Public Health Agency of Canada regarding a salmonella outbreak in six provinces across the country. And of course, it wouldn't be Tuesday without the weekly news quiz. Alex Smythe, Karen McGee and Alicia Yardley are joining in the weekly test of the knowledge. Interesting. Karen McGee is back and Brock Richardson isn't. I think if you go back for the last few weeks, this may be a pattern. Uh All right, here's the closing moment. This one Kelly picked out, and he's not here to talk about it, but we are because it's about pizza. A BC senior has achieved internet fame thanks to a um, media recorded at Vancouver Studios for CBC, and this was 65 years ago. 90-year-old Kathy Brady says she's pleasantly surprised that a segment filmed in 1957 for a TV pilot in which she tells viewers all about the popular Italian dish called pizza. Pizza Pie has found a new audience. Pizza Pie is becoming very popular, especially down in the States, and um, this is what Brady was saying, dressed in a cardigan in the clip. There are some restaurants that even specialize in it, and these are called pizzerias. Saturday night, as you drive down, you can see cars lined up for miles waiting for their pizza prize. Brady first became, became aware of the uh, outreach of this video with her daughter, who saw the black and white video pop up on a social media feed. And she's like, oh my gosh, that's my mother in law. And but posted about it on social media. That's the uh, last name of the person, the girl. And the story behind the video was very fun for everyone to look back on and feel nostalgic about. Now, She's 90 now. She referred returned back to CBC after this clip aired to talk about her newfound internet fame. So fun when we can all keep in touch and be nostalgic and revisit back to the olden days, but through social media, Grant. Now, do you know what a pizza pie is or have tried it before?
3: I've never tried it before, but mm. uh, that's really sweet. That's really cute that her fame has sort of resurfaced years later
2: exactly so maybe after this we'll all go back and find out what pizza pie exactly is and try it out let's see what's coming up on tomorrow's show this is the tuesday edition of kelly and ramia come back to join us because we have nutrition with julia caranches and we're talking chili and all of its mighty nutrients now if kelly doesn't show up for this conversation we know why because he doesn't like Chili.
3: Okay. Also on Ask a Vet with Danielle Johnkind, we discuss navigating those difficult conversations and situations between vets and clients.
2: Grant and I holding down the fort today. Thanks for joining us. Be back tomorrow for more Kelly and Remia.
1: We always on the show get into something. Hey, what's your favorite day or what's your most hated day? Like it just it grinds you or whatever it might be. So I'm thinking of music. We got talking the other day about the music floating around, the environment. What day of the week kind of is more of a rock day, a jazz day, a country day. And I put jazz on a lot, especially for background, just to have around. I'll do talk radio, especially sports. I look a lot at news stuff, so I don't think I really want to listen to call-in shows while I'm working or necessarily another on-air host go on as much as I do about a subject. So, and ramble on and on. So I think it's, it's, it's somewhat music, but I don't consider myself anymore any music aficionado. I couldn't sit here and say, oh, oh, that's, that's Monk, or oh my goodness, that's a great old tune from you know Count Basie and, and his orchestra, or some of my stuff from the 90s. I tend to, when I do go to that, it's more stuff I played when I was at Fanshawe over the air. So Biggie and, and Puff Daddy, stuff like that. I do enjoy some country but that's rare that I'll put that on very rare. A lot of times it's 70 soul really enjoy some of those songs, but that gets repetitious because there's a much tighter universe on the stuff that gets played. And sometimes that, that can get to you. So I would think I kind of listen to more talk than anything with sports and use that as some background, but I'm falling off even of that Um, old radio shows once in a while, put them on. But if I'm trying to work, Then I start listening to it, and I'm going to start going backwards. So, no. Generally, it's a little bit of settled music. If you said to me, okay, what is your favorite pop stuff? Wow. It's hard now. I don't really listen to a lot of 80s anymore. I think I got sick of that. 90s, I was never a huge, huge, even though there's plenty of songs that I like. Ooh. Ooh. Probably some stuff late '90s. Again, going back to when I was at Fanshawe. Smile again for the early '80s stuff. Love my '70s, and uh, probably 2000 through 2012 or 14. Yeah, not as much on the recent stuff. And it's not that a like or a dislike, just disconnected a bit. Um, always thinking, gosh, you should really play some top 40 stations and kind of get back with it, Kelly.